At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 361st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, we want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is, I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. In nature, we don't find closed loop systems. We find circular systems where energy and resources are part of a loop, repeating itself endlessly and sustaining those systems. Growing food should be a circular system too, and aquaponics is a perfect example. Aquaponics uses natural cycles where fish feed plants and plants feed fish. Let us teach you how to start your own fish-powered garden in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you'll receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who dug up the story of a slow food pioneer. We're talking with Adam Fetterman about the influence of Patience Gray. Adam is a reporting fellow with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute covering energy and the environment. He has written for several publications, including The Nation Magazine, The Guardian, and Columbia Journalism Review. He is the author of Fasting and Feasting, The Life of Visionary Food Writer Patience Gray, published through our friends at Chelsea Green. He is a former line cook bread baker, pastry chef, and currently lives in Vermont. Welcome to the show today, Adam. Are you ready to rock? I am indeed. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yes. You know, I've been a journalist and freelance writer for more than 10 years now. And also, as you mentioned in my bio, a part-time cook and pastry chef. And I've sort of done both of those things at the same time. And, and in some instances, they've sort of merged, as is the case with my biography of Patience Gray. But I'm also an investigative journalist focusing on the environment. I grew up in in the Adirondacks in upstate New York and have always had a passion for the outdoors and wild places and have, you know, taken an interest in reporting on environmental issues, both at the sort of the local level here in Vermont and in upstate New York and at the national level reporting on the current administration and its approach to oil and gas development on public lands, among many other issues. So, you know, I'm quite curious. I read widely and sort of let my interests take me where they do. And that has led 
to both a career as a writer and a cook at times. Wow. So I've bet you've seen some exciting things. I've had the great opportunity to work on really interesting stories, you know, some quite devastating in terms of the environmental impacts, but some also really wonderful pieces. You know, the book was perhaps the most surprising and unusual opportunity that I literally stumbled upon because I had never heard of Patience Gray until after she died in 2005. And at that time, never imagined that I would write a biography, let alone her biography. So, you know, that took really more than 10 years research and getting the book off the ground. But I've come to appreciate the fact that, you know, the good things in life often take some time. <laughs> yes. I was very, very lucky to be able to work on that and to have had the opportunity to write about her remarkable life. Yeah. Well, we'll get to who Patience Gray is here in a little while, because honestly, I'd never heard of you either. But how did you come across this? Because, you know, it's taking on a biography for somebody. That's a project. Yes. <laughs> I think it was, in some ways, it was a blessing that I didn't quite realize I was taking it on until I was, you know, sort of midway through the process. I'm, I'm like just a, most other folks, including yourself, who had never heard of patients, as I just said. But, you know, I've had a long interest in food and cooking. I was working in restaurants at that time, and I read an obituary of her in a magazine called The Art of Eating, which is a quarterly food magazine published here in Vermont by a guy named Ed Bear. He's the editor and founder, and he was a great champion of Patience's work, had reviewed Honey from a Weed, which is Patience's best-known book. He had reviewed that in 1986 when it was published and had visited her a couple of times in the 1990s. In that obituary, he described Honey from a Weed as one of the best books that will ever be written about food. It was a bit over the top, and his descriptions of her and where she lived in the far south of Italy were really compelling, you know, so that really whetted my appetite. And then it turned out that my parents actually had a copy of Honey from a Weed that had been in our house for years, and I'd never noticed it. So those two things happened simultaneously. I read Honey from a Weed, and from that point on was really kind of hooked, and over the years began to investigate her life and eventually realized that it was worthy of a book-length project. Wow. So how did it come to be? It came to be over the course of many years, many visits to the south of Italy, where Patience's son, Nicholas Gray, currently lives and moved to take care of her in her old age and has stayed since. And that's where the vast majority of Patience's letters and unpublished materials are. And when I contacted Nick and his sister, Miranda, in 2006, Nick invited me down and said, you know, you're welcome to start going through the papers that Patience left behind. It's a complete mess, total chaos, but sort of have at it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, you know, I was barely embarking on a career as a journalist at that point. So I, I really didn't think that I would end up doing a book on patients. I thought maybe I'll write a couple of articles and then move on to the next thing, which is what I did essentially. But I also realized that in that archive was just remarkable. I realized that that archive was just a treasure trove of patients' life, you know, letters going back to the late 1930s and up to the present. She was a prolific letter writer and a wonderful writer and lived this fascinating, very unconventional life. Although she's not that well known, those who do know her work consider her kind of a guru and, and her book, Honey from a Weed, has attained a kind of cult status. All those threads came together and it just seemed like something that should be turned into a book. So at that point, I drafted a proposal and, and tried to pitch the book in England. Patience, of course, was born in England and lived half her life there. She has somewhat better name recognition there, so it seemed like it would make more sense to try to sell the book there. But to no avail, we spent a couple 
couple of years and no one seemed interested. So I was on the verge of moving on from the project. I had actually applied to go to law school here in Vermont and Chelsea Green contacted me out of the blue about something else entirely, some other environmental reporting I had done and asked if I was interested in writing a book length project on that. And I said, no, but I have this other project that I've been working on for years. You know, would you be interested in hearing about it? Of course they were. They were. That was a very fortunate encounter and the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. Well, and Chelsea Green is amazing at what they do. So Absolutely. You know, they take great care in the production of the books that they do from the editing all the way to the way the books look and are designed and all that, which I was very happy about, in part because Patience herself approached book writing and bookmaking as a kind of craft. And Honey from a Weed is a great example of that. It's a gorgeous book with more than 100 illustrations by Corinna Sargood and just lovingly made. And that was something that was very important to Patience in whatever she did. And, you know, books are no exception, even in the digital age. So Chelsea Green does a very nice job of that. They definitely rock. So who is Patience Gray? It's a question I try to answer in my book. Of course, she was many things. She's best known as a food writer and the author of a seminal book on food and cooking and foraging called Honey from a Weed, which is an account of her travels and living in various villages throughout the Mediterranean, a book that took nearly 15 years to write and publish. And by the time it was published, she was nearly 70. So one of the really interesting things about working on this project was learning who this person was who came to write this book that has been so celebrated. She wore many hats. She raised children out of wedlock in wartime London, lived in London throughout the 1950s, was very involved in the graphic arts and design during 1950s London, and also a freelance journalist and writer. She published a beloved cookbook in the late 1950s called Plat du Jour, which was a penguin paperback and did... Wow. Yeah, it's a beautiful book, also lovingly illustrated, and it's a kind of classic in its own right. And that was her first foray into food writing, food and cooking. She didn't really consider herself a food person or a food writer, you know, whatever that phrase means. But she was always interested in the natural environment, in plants and fungi. There's a chapter in Plat du Jour on fungi, which at that time was quite unusual. She did most of the foraging and research for that in and around her mother's cottage in Rogate in the English countryside, which is where patients had lived for several years during the war. Very primitive, you know, no electricity, water from a well. You know, she was there with her two small children during the war years and began to take an interest in edible plants and fungi that were in the countryside around them. And that passion is something that she carried on with her throughout her life and really became a leading expert on edible wild plants and mushrooms. And not even from a weed, you kind of see that come reach its apex because it's a marvelous field guide to all of those things. Wow. Well, and that was at a time that there was probably sparse amounts of food available during the war. She was needing to figure it out. Yes. In fact, in a later interview, she told the BBC that, you know, it was during wartime that she began to forage out of necessity. And of course, I think it's probably somewhat difficult for American listeners to appreciate just what it was like during the war in England with rationing. I mean, the restrictions on basic foods and items that we take for granted today, you know, including butter, milk, eggs, and meat were quite extreme. So people really had to make do with a very limited pantry. And, you know, patients and other food writers who came to the fore after the war, like Elizabeth David, were in many ways shaped by that experience. And, you know, patients discusses that in Plat du Jour. And the 1950s were this really interesting moment when people again had access to ingredients that they had been deprived of for many, many years, you know, more than a decade. And they had a real interest in learning about the cuisines of Italy, France, and other parts of Europe. Wow. So fasting and 
and Feasting. This is a beautiful book. It's a significant book. You know, you've done a fair amount of work to get here, over 300 pages. Let me just ask it this way. One of the most striking things that you discovered. You know, so much of her life was unusual, lived in a very unconventional way that I felt that in researching almost every phase of her life that I discovered, you know, things that were unexpected or just really added depth to an understanding of who she was. Mm -hmm. You know, the wartime period. Let me just back up for a minute and also add that Patience did do a fair amount of autobiographical writing. She published a very unusual memoir called Work Adventures Childhood Dreams, more of a collection of essays, really. But it does touch on her childhood and some of these other parts of her life. But she was always very circumspect about that and deliberately kind of obfuscated and left questions unanswered and sort of dropped tantalizing details about her past without providing any other information. So there were these clues out there, but really nothing else. So filling that picture out and understanding who she was and what she lived through, particularly in relation to the father of her children, Thomas Gray, someone she never married, but she took his name, was a very brief relationship during the early years of the war. That was something that she completely kind of erased from her autobiography. So piecing that back together, getting a sense of who he was and what that period meant to her was certainly illuminating in a number of ways. And then just getting a sense of what drove her, what pushed her to explore the kinds of things that she did. And as an amateur, I mean, in the most sort of literal sense of the word, doing something out of a love of the pursuit of doing that thing, you know, was something that patients took very seriously. And she taught herself how to do many of these things. You know, she was not a trained botanist. She wasn't trained in the arts of bookmaking or jewelry, but these were all things that she learned to do. And, you know, it's something that I think is a bit of a lost art today. That is the case. Absolutely. So I know this is a metaphor, at least I think it has to be, but how does one draw honey from weeds? It's a wonderful title and it captures so much of what I think the ethos of what Patience was writing about. I mean, it comes from a poem by William Cowper and was also used as a line in one of Shakespeare's plays, in fact. And it was kind of in the ether, I guess, though it was not the original selection for the title of the book. That was actually Fasting and Feasting. But in the end, Patience chose Honey from a Weed. And, and, you know, she believed that weeds and plants were incredibly valuable. And, you know, weeds, at least in North American context, have a pretty bad reputation, which is, you know, it's a shame. And Patience was really celebrating the fact that there's this enormous diversity and abundance of life and vitality in what we often just sort of reject and consider inedible. So, you know, I think that the title captures what she had set out to do, which was to kind of reclaim these forgotten plants and weeds from their former glory. So in the introduction, did you write the introduction? I did. Yeah. In the introduction, you say, honey from a weed lives on, a source of inspiration to many, but Patience herself remains an almost forgotten culinary star. And then you go on to say, a full account of her remarkable life is long overdue. It sure sounds that way. Yeah. You know, honey from a weed has definitely had an impact on a number of food writers and chefs. American food writers at the time were really deeply moved by her book, and many kind of made the pilgrimage to visit her in the south of Italy, which was a long and somewhat arduous trip. You know, food writers from Corby Kummer and Ed Bear to John Thorne and Alice Waters were all kind of infatuated with this book. And a number of chefs, young chefs, have also cited Honey from Weed as a very important book, not so much as a cookbook, but as a kind of an inspiration. You know, I felt, though, that Patience herself remained something of an enigma. And after the publication of Honey from a Weed in 1986, there was a flurry of interest in her and who she was and how she lived. And, you know, the BBC did an interview with her in 1988. 
date, which is quite striking. But after that, she did kind of vanish in a sense. And she lived very far off the beaten path and had no electricity and no telephone and used a typewriter and wrote letters to communicate with people. Wow. Yeah, she was not in the publishing literary world. She was not really in the food writing world. And, you know, I think the BBC, they used that phrase describing her as an almost forgotten culinary star. And I think that was true. But hopefully this book will do at least a little bit to ameliorate that. After having gone through what seems to be at least a decade or more of time researching, how do you feel about all this? Where's your heart at it? Well, I guess in some ways the heart grows fonder even as time goes on. I loved working on the project. There were many points at which I didn't really know where it would go. And the fact that it ended up coming together at all still kind of amazes me. It was incredibly rewarding. And not only the research and learning about her and writing the book, but I came into contact with so many remarkable people. And, you know, Patience was a very social person. I think one thing I hope comes across in the book is that even though she and her partner, Norman, he was a sculptor, they lived in a very remote part of Southern Italy. They were far from living a hermit-like sort of life. They had visitors all the time, and they were very kind of keyed into the art world and kept up on what was happening in the world. They were avid readers and, you know, just very engaged people all around. So, and Patience had a life in which she crossed paths with so many astonishingly fascinating people. And in a sense, writing the book was also a way of engaging with those personalities. And in many cases, meeting some of these people, you know, including her children and her family, David Gentleman, who illustrated Plat du Jour, you know, he's still alive and well working in London, you know, just all kinds of really, really interesting and inspiring people. Wow. Sounds like a awesomely fun project. It was. I'm slightly worried now that I'll never come across another project that can rival this one. Well, I'll tell you, Bill Mollison was quite a colorful man. Bill Mollison. Are you familiar with that name? I'm not but I will write it down. He's the person, along with a few other people, who penned permaculture. Okay. And he had a very colorful life. Maybe look there. Yes, I'm always keeping my eye out for the next biography. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. You know, it's a really interesting question and a hard one to answer, but as a writer and a journalist, I mean, failure is kind of built into what we do on an almost daily or weekly basis. I know it might sound a bit glib, but every time I write a new story or work on a new piece, there's a process of trying to do what you're setting out to do and almost always failing. Every story, every book goes through multiple drafts, and there's this almost sense that you won't be able to overcome that, you know, as you're sort of staring at the blank page. And I think it's a really interesting metaphor and process to go through because it kind of contradicts the notion that as you do something more, you simply get better at it and it becomes easier because I think with writing, that's really not the case. And failure is sort of built into the very DNA of the process of writing. So in a sense, you have to constantly overcome that, you know, to do the work that I do. So it's really about standing up and moving forward no matter what? Yes. And also acknowledging that the failure part of it is essential because that's how you figure out where it is that a piece needs to go. Or in the case of a book, a much bigger project, how do I structure this? How does it all fit together? You know, you're never going to get that right on the first try. And in some cases, cases, it can be impossibly frustrating where you feel like you're at an impasse and you have to figure out how to get through that. In some cases, you say, okay, I'm done, walk away, and Chelsea Green shows up and says, hey, you want to write a book for us? Yes, right. There are those unexpected moments. And it wasn't so much that I felt that I had failed in terms of pitching the book. It had reached a point where I felt that I had exhausted the possibilities and you know realized it's time to move on. There's always that wonderful element of serendipity. Yeah. That was 
key to this project. You know, I literally stumbled across her obituary and then the copy of the book that my parents had and all the way through to Chelsea Green, recognizing that it was something worth taking a risk on. Magic. We'll take it. So what do you consider your biggest success? Well, other than having two wonderful young daughters and a beautiful family, I'd be lying if I didn't say that this book was certainly my greatest success. I mean, I spent innumerable hours on it before I even thought it would become a book. And to have it out in the world today is undoubtedly sparkling. Yeah. You know, it's a great thing. I have not yet written a book of any magnitude. I have some small books that I've put out there. I do have a lot of friends who have written books. I've watched them through the process and it's a large process and the success that comes with it once it's done and the feeling. So how does it make you feel to have this book, you know, out there for people to read? I mean, it's hard to describe, you know, writing is what I do, but even so working on a book, especially a book that you put so much, well, I don't want to say time because everyone who writes a book puts time into it, but I guess a book that you deeply care about and a subject who deeply cared about books and writing, you know, it's something that is just enormously satisfying. And I think another element of it was that I never set out to be a biographer. I never thought I would write a biography of Patience Gray. So that makes it all the more sort of sweet. I was going to say sweet, right? Absolutely. Well, congratulations. So what drives you? I wish I could answer that. I honestly don't really know. I mean, in my journalism and investigative reporting, it is a sense of social justice and, and kind of exposing what's wrong with the world and those who perpetrate, you know, some of those injustices on the environment and others. That's certainly a great motivating factor in my reporting work. But there's also something that I think is kind of unspeakable. It's hard to pin down, you know, maybe Garcia Lorca's discussion of the Spanish word duende, you know, inspiration, passion that just sort of comes from nowhere. I think that's a big part of it. And in some ways that makes it even more, I'm not sure what the word is, but it doesn't need to be defined, I guess, to drive me. It's, it's just there. I let it be. I can hear it in your heart. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I wish I had a better answer. Beautiful. And I've always loved to write. So, you know, there's a certain amount of just love that comes from it and out of that, the desire to do more. Beautiful. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? It's so hard to recommend just one. I thought about this a bit and I like to go with what I've been reading recently. I recently finished a wonderful biography of Shirley Jackson, the American writer by Ruth Franklin called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. And I think the hallmark of a great biography is if it's a person you are not really familiar with, haven't read their work, maybe you've heard of them, know about them to some extent. And even so, the biography completely takes you in and you know makes you want to read their work. And that was certainly the case with this book. And it's a remarkable portrait of a remarkable woman and writer who perhaps has not had the kind of recognition that she should. So I highly recommend it. Who is she? Shirley Jackson. She was one of the great American writers of the mid 20th century. You know, she's best known for her short story, The Lottery, which a lot of kids read in middle school or high school. But she wrote a number of just remarkable, some sort of gothic or unusual, hard to pin down novels along with essays and stories and lived a very unconventional life. She was an eccentric person. And this book really captures that spirit. Cool. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I guess my advice would be don't listen too much to what other people tell you. Carve your own path, cut your own trail, and you know, take the kinds of risks that most people would tell you not to, I guess. I love that. I am totally in on that one. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Adam. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. So how do our listeners get a hold of you? They can find my work and contact me through my website. It's adamfetterman.com. Perfect. And the book Fasting and Feasting, The Life 
Life of Visionary Food Writer Patience Gray by Adam Fetterman and published by Chelsea Green is available and we will have that on our show notes page. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Adam. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. We want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy at the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWANTTOGARDEN.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWANTTOGARDEN.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.